Our 260 reading plan has been so good and so rich. And man, I hope you've been reading um, with me and many of our church family through the New Testament this year. Why do we call it 260? Because there's 260 chapters in the New Testament, which is the same number of weekdays there are every year. So we're reading one chapter a day, Monday through Friday, and we're reading through the entire New Testament. One of the things that I so appreciate about reading through the New Testament this way and reading all of it is that we get to the sticky parts. We get to the parts where it's like, yeah, that's not typically, you know, what I would want to spend time preaching or, or, you know, even thinking about talking about. And so like in eight plus years, we have never talked about what we're going to be diving into this morning. But in this week's reading, we came to 1 Timothy chapter 2, and it's going really well until Paul starts giving instructions to his spiritual son, Timothy, about women, about women in the church. And it's like, oh, this is, this is dicey, because it's here where, where Paul literally says that women should be silent or quiet and he says, like, I don't, I don't permit women to, like, have authority and teach men. And it's like, well, what is, well, well wait a second. Well, we're a four-score church. We know we have women in ministry leadership. So what's going on here? And we also know that there's other places within New Testament teaching that absolutely seem to promote the idea that in Christ that we are one. Right? In Galatians Again, Paul says, you know, it's like, man, we are no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. We are one in Christ. So how can both of those things be true simultaneously? It's one of the harder points to work through and to figure out. Because I'll tell you, I am absolutely positively 1,000% committed to women in ministry leadership in every single role um, within the church. And it's partly, partly because my life has been dramatically and positively impacted by women in ministry leadership over my lifetime. Starting with mi madre, my mom, Arlen, who happens to be on the front row this morning, and an amazing, not only an amazing woman of God, but has been used powerfully um, through her lifetime um, in dramatic ministry moments. And she has spoken around the world. She's preached the gospel um, in many different nations. And that is to me so, so compelling. And that has marked my life. More than that, I was raised within the Foursquare Church movement that was founded in the 1920s, 100 years ago, by a woman, Amy Semple McPherson, who is also an immigrant, widow, remarried, divorced, complicated life and story, who was amazingly used by God in the, around the world. And because of her ministry and because of her simple obedience, even with a, a complex life and story, 
God used her to breathe life into a whole church movement that now there's close to 80,000 churches around the world that bear the name Foursquare. That's incredible. And then coming here to Santa Maria Foursquare Church and doing the history on our church, which is 96 years old, founded by a woman, Peggy King, who had been influenced by Sister Amy's life and ministry, trained under her, raised up, going to uh, what was then, you know, Life Bible College, and was sent out. And guess where she came? She came to Santa Maria with a little band of people, but it was Peggy who was most influential here in the founding of the Santa Maria Foursquare Church. This is incredible. And I could go on and on and talk about other women who have had tremendous ministry impact and leadership in my life. But you know what? We don't just base our theology on our life experiences. Can I say that again? We don't just base our theology, our understanding of God and how he wants us to live just because of our life experiences. We need to go into the word and we need to actually do some of the hard work, the heavy lifting of figuring out, well, what does this mean? How does this, this, this teaching, these thoughts that Paul's dropping on us, thanks, Paul, you, if you could have gone on a couple more chapters and nuanced this a little bit more fully, it would have been really helpful. But you just make these statements and walk away. Oftentimes, because they had hundreds, thousands of hours together, right, of teaching and of life together, that we only get these like little snippets and glimpses. What, Paul, what were you saying there? I wish we could have been there, but we can't, but we can do the hard work of study and thoughtful investigation of what the scriptures teach. And so today, helping me to do that very, very thing is a dear friend, someone who I've known for I think the majority of her life um, is Jen Thigpen, who is gonna be coming in just a moment. Jen is a leader within our Foursquare movement. And, and I just, can I pause for a moment and just say, when I was conceiving of, and knowing we were gonna get here to this morning, when I said months and months and months and months ago, I was excited about today and where we'd be in the word, I thought maybe it would be helpful for me to bring a message on this. Uh, you know, for all men and women to hear that, you know, why I so firmly believe in women in ministry leadership. But then I thought, you know, I can affirm that and you've seen me affirm it. It's why we promote women and have women speak in, you know, from our pulpit often. But I also thought, I don't want to mansplain. Uh, if you know what mansplaining is, well, you can Google it if you, if you don't know, but, you know, it's where men talk to women about things then sometimes you know can be can seem a little condescending or patronizing and that is not my heart at all and i thought who could i invite in who is a woman who is committed deeply to the things of god and to his word a a budding theologian i might say and Jen Thigpen is all of those things. She is an adjunct professor at Life Pacific University. Um, she is also, her full-time gig is, is our multi-ethnic coordinator for the Western District. She has pastored churches and is an amazing woman of God that we're gonna get to learn from today as we dive into Paul's words here in 1 Timothy chapter two. 
Welcome, Jen. We love you, friend. So proud of you. So I have heard this passage preached exactly zero times um, from a pulpit. I've had this passage weaponized a lot of times. But today, as we open God's word, we're going to spend some time looking at what do we do with hard passages? So would you pray with me as we get started? Jesus, we thank you that you are the empower of people. Men and women, young and old, of all classes, of all ethnicities, of all languages. God, you have a call on each of our lives. And so, Lord, as we dive into this hard passage today, Lord, would we not, would we not be intimidated by the language used, but God, would we really tap into your heart, your heart about women, your heart about ministry, your heart about what it means to be part of the body of Christ. Lord, would you open our ears and our hearts to understand, and God, would you speak to us in fresh ways, Lord? I pray for the women in this room in particular, God, where they might have been bound by tradition. God, would you just begin to loose chains this morning by the freedom that comes by, de- by dealing with your word. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So let me start with 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 11. I'm going to read it, and then we're going to talk about it. Women should learn quietly and submissively. We're starting off so well. <laughs> but wait, it gets better. I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. For God made Adam first, and afterward he made Eve. And, it, and was it, it was not Adam who was deceived by Satan. The woman was deceived, and sin was the result. But women will be saved through childbearing, assuming they continue to live in faith, love, holiness, and modesty. So fun, right? So great. What do we do with passages like this? What do we do when we come to these places where we might fully disagree because of our tradition, because of where we've grown up. Like Pastor Tim, I have grown up around strong women. Um, Some would classify me as a strong woman. Uh, There is a sense of calling that I have and a compulsion to preach the gospel. So what do I do when I get to 1 Timothy 2? Do I just ignore it? See, that doesn't work because we believe that all scripture is God-breathed in another letter to Timothy, uh, and it's useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. So if that's true, what do we do with this? Do we just take it at face value? Do we ignore it? Or do we do the hard work of trying to figure out what it means? Uh, One of the classes that I teach at Life Pacific right now is Biblical Interpretation and Application. Um, So I spend a lot of time teaching students how to read scripture, how to do it in a way that's thoughtful and faithful to the text. And so I'm going to give you some tips in the midst of this. I'm going to try not to put too much of my professor hat on today, but one of the things I tell my students often is that we must remember that the Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us. Let me say that one more time. The Bible was written for us, but not to us. What that means is that we were not the original audience. 
So there must be something about what was taking place in a time and a space that Paul was writing to the people he was writing to that we don't understand here in the year of our Lord 2023 in the United States of America. So that immediately gives us a sense of freedom because it's not writing to our culture, it's not writing to our time, and so that doesn't mean we ignore it, but it means we have to do a little bit of extra work. Are you guys ready to do some work with me this morning? All right, so let's start with talking about Paul. Let's talk about where he was, what he was doing, who he was writing to. The Apostle Paul wrote most of the New Testament, and in his position, he was writing to his spiritual son, Timothy. Timothy was a young leader. He was a a man who was leading the church in Ephesus, but most of the letter of 1 Timothy is Paul encouraging Timothy to get it together. He was a timid leader. He was struggling with um, taking the role of the mantle of the pastorate, like, he was, he was struggling in how to lead well. And so, so much of what Paul was saying throughout the entire letter of 1 Timothy was, get it together, buddy. We need you to lead, and we need you to lead well. And so Paul is coming to Timothy as a spiritual father and is saying, I know you're struggling, but here's some pastoral advice. I, I need you to know some things, and, and here are some issues that you're dealing with in your church that I'm going to give you some advice on. He saw Timothy as a trustworthy partner, but also that he needed some encouragement and some leadership. And so Paul writes specifically to Timothy about some specific issues that are happening in the church of Ephesus. What kind of issues? Let us dig further. Timothy was leading in the city of Ephesus, which was an ancient Greek port city. It was a, uh, one of the biggest in the Roman Empire. I believe it's the second biggest city in the Roman Empire. So it was full of people and diverse experiences. And as the gospel spread, they were experiencing these, these um, moments where Gentile con- converts, believers in these Gentile cities, were having to deal with what does it mean to follow Christ in the midst of my culture? One of the big places of cultural conflict in Ephesus was this big temple in the center of the city, this temple of Artemis. Artemis was a Greek goddess who was kind of the goddess of like Mother Earth, but she was also the goddess of childbirth and fertility and chastity. And so there was a a worship idea around Artemis and her cult um, that was finding its way into the church. And one of the the specific areas of that is that women were super empowered in this space because Artemis was a goddess. She was a goddess that empowered women. And so because that was the, the majority of the culture, there were these places of conflict and tension happening for the people of Ephesus and the church in Ephesus. My bad. Um, And so... They're having to navigate all of these things. They're having to navigate, how do I hold this together? Um, Can I still worship the way I did? What do we do about this cultural reality, about women being empowered? How does that refer to how men lead? So they were dealing with all of this. And so Paul is saying, Timothy, we need to get things in order. And so the beginning of 1 Timothy 2 is all about how do we worship together? How do we worship together in community? 
How do we uh, live in these spaces? I'm going to pause right here and mention that this is not the only place in Paul's writings where he talks about women being silent. In 1 Corinthians 14, we have another passage in which Paul talks about women being silent, and it's also in the context of orderly worship. And so when we look at kind of the the whole of Paul's writings, Paul is not just trying to silence women for the sake of silencing women. I remember when I was in seminary, um, I I went into my New Testament survey class, and I sat next to a a young woman in in my uh, class, and she said, Oh, I can't, I don't really want to take this class because Paul hates women. And I was like, well, that seems unfair. But in a modern reading of, of these words, there is something that feels like Paul's just trying to silence women because he hates women. But that's not the reality. When we look at this larger context of what Paul is writing to Timothy, He's writing about Timothy's leadership. He's writing about church leadership. He's writing about correcting false teachings. And so it's important that we understand that Paul was trying to correct some stuff that was going on specifically in the church of Ephesus. He was inviting Timothy and the Ephesian church to fight for unity, which is what he was always encouraging the church to do, to fight for unity because the body of Christ was meant to be unified. And so if we go back briefly to this idea of the cult of Artemis in Ephesus, they were dealing with what does it look like for women to worship in the church. Uh, One of the things about the cult of Artemis is that there was a, a sense of only the wealthy would serve as priestesses in this cult. And so they would dress very ostentatiously. They'd have big hair, they'd have really nice clothes. It's like you coming to the church um, with like your prom dress or your wedding dress every Sunday, like just really over the top dress. And so before Paul starts talking about, I want women to learn silently, he talks about how they dress. He talks about how they come to church. What does it mean to be a part of the body of Christ when you're flaunting your wealth and the pride that goes with that? Yeah. Often when we've heard this passage preached and talked about in terms of modesty, it's always been this idea of sexual sin and don't, you know, don't cause your brothers to sin and like, yeah, don't do that. But also... It was about, are you flaunting your wealth? Are you being prideful? Are you more reliant on your status than who Jesus has called you to be? 1 Timothy 2.10 talks about you need to come in and let the good works of your life be evidence of what God is doing, not your stuff, which is true for men and for women. But this is particular to the, the church of Ephesus and the women that have come out of the cult of Artemis and are now in this space. So then we go to 1 Timothy 2.11. I I want women to learn quietly and submissively. And this has had a negative reading for so many modern readers. But here's a couple of things we should know. Paul wants women to learn. That's big in the Greco-Roman world. Women were not educated. It was not part of what the society did. They, men were educated, young boys were educated, but women were not. And so the fact that Paul says, I want women to learn, says that he's flipping society on his head and saying, we want to train women. We want, her, we want them to be able to, to learn and to grow. 
but I want them to learn quietly and submissively. If you are a teacher, you actually know what this means. So every semester, I have at least one student that is sure that they know more than I do. 100% every single semester. The, the kid in the front row who raises their hand every single time I say something to contradict me or tell me that, oh, but I read it this way. And we love them. <laughs> we do, but goodness, they get exhausting. Yeah, if you're a teacher, probably if you have kids, you probably know this too. Like they read something and they're like, no, mom, that's not it. No, 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 dad, I, I heard it on the news this way. Or maybe if you're a pastor, you know how that goes too. <laughs> There's all these places where we recognize that, that people will hear a teaching and then they will start to feel like they know better. And so Timothy is dealing with this in his church, that there are women, and if you're looking at the, the actual Greek, um, it's more a woman, not women at large, that is has accepted a lot of the false teaching, has accepted this kind of synchronistic, is what we call it, this combination of gospel truth and truth of the, the pagan culture and like holding them together. And she would go in when Timothy was preaching and try to out-teach him. Oh, but I know, I know better, I know better, I know better, I know better. And Paul was like, Timothy, my guy, you gotta shut it down. Because what we did not have was the written text. This was not, the gospel had not been put into letter form yet. Like, there was not a text that they were able to just open a Bible and say, but here's what the Bible says. Everything was oral tradition. So when you have somebody that's constantly raising their hand or shouting out in class, they're confusing everybody in the room because that's how they're learning. And so, so Paul's saying to Timothy, hey, I understand that, that you are, are struggling with your leadership, but this is not a moment to struggle because the gospel is that important, that you need to bring clarity. And the only way that you bring clarity is making sure that you don't have voices jumbling up what's true. Yeah, that's good. So I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Uh, one of the challenging things about reading the Bible in English is that it's not Greek. <laughs> I don't know how many of you guys read ancient Greek, but the fact is, is that there are things that don't exactly translate from Greek to English. And so we have to hold in tension that we are letting other people tell us what the original Greek says. So I encourage you, if you want to learn ancient Greek, go for it. <laughs> but one of the things is that how that has been translated into English over time has been a result of other people's ideas about women, ideas about um, ministry, about what Paul might have been saying. You know, there might be people that are like, yeah, Paul totally hates women, and I'm going to translate into English that way. But more often than not, we have to just do the work to figure out what he was saying. And so instead of saying that Paul was speaking to all women, he was speaking about a woman who was challenging Timothy's ministry. And he was saying, Timothy, get it together. Understand your role as a leader. 
understand your role as the, as the one who carries the gospel and make sure it doesn't get confused. It doesn't get muddled by the world, by the context that you're living in. So what about 212? 212 is the one that has been weaponized against women for a very, very long time. And so we have to deal with the fact that Paul does say, I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority of her mound. One of the, the challenges of this particular text is the word that um, is used for exercise authority, um, authetane. It's a Greek word that is only used once in the New Testament, and it is used right here. We have no other context for how that might be used in Scripture. So we have to go to outside of scripture. We have to look at other Greek sources. And a lot of these other Greek sources say that that particular word talks about like a forceful taking of authority. And so if, if that's the case, then we're saying, Paul is saying, I don't permit a woman to forcefully take the authority that you have been given, Timothy, by the laying on of hands. I do not permit women to go and usurp your authority. Because being disruptive and giving to false teachings are the things that we are not allowed to do. And again, that's not just women, but in particular, this situation was about a woman. But if a guy was going around spreading false teachings and trying to usurp Timothy's authority, I don't think there's anywhere Paul would say, yeah, it's fine, because he's a dude. In fact, he would say no. Because anywhere that the gospel is being muddled is a place where we need to bring clarity. And so Paul talks about it. He uses this example out of Genesis uh, about Adam and Eve. And he talks about how it was the Adam who was made first, then Eve. And then it was the woman who was deceived first. And, and that's how sin entered the world. And in our readings, historically, we've said, look, that's an example of Paul saying that women are lesser than, or women are more susceptible to sin, or women are fill in the blank. But let's just take a quick detour to Genesis, shall we? Because it's better to actually read the text. So in Genesis chapter 1, you guys probably know the story, we get this narrative of God creating everything, and then we see him create man and woman. Genesis 1.27 talks about um, he created them in the image of God. Male and female, he created them. Both of them in God's image. That's important. Hold that. Genesis 2, however, zooms in a little bit. And we see God create Adam from the, the dust of the ground, breathes his life into him, and he tries to find him a suitable helper. It's the Hebrew word ezer. And it's been translated into this word helper or helpmate as though it is a lesser or subordinate role. But Ezer not only means helper, but also ally and rescuer. This word Ezer is used 21 times in the Old Testament. Two of them are about women, the first woman to be exact. 14 of them refer to God. God is our helper. God is our rescuer. God is our ally. What I'm not saying is that we elevate women to the status of God. Of course not. But what I'm saying is that the word helper 
is not the same as subordinate. It's saying that women who were created in the image of God was called to be a partner, a helper, an ally. And that, in fact, scripture says that she was the only suitable helper for the man. That no one else, nothing else in all of creation was going to be suitable for the man. So Ezra says God is our helper, but also women are helpers to men. And so it's this idea of partnership. That, that, yes, Adam was made first, but something always has to come first, right? Could God have made them simultaneously? Sure. But he didn't. But that doesn't mean that men are superior. In fact, here's a little fun fact for you. The idea of male headship doesn't actually show up in Scripture until after sin has entered the world. It's part of Eve's curse. Genesis 3.16 says that you will desire your husband and he will rule over you. That was not the original plan. The original plan was partnership. The original plan was walking side by side and helping each other for the sake of stewarding that which God had given them. Of stewarding that which God had given them and, and their responsibility to bear an image forth, the image of the unseen God. And so we, we start to recognize that we have this pattern in Scripture in which women are not being silenced, they're not being put to the side, they're not second-class citizens, but they are meant to be partners in God's kingdom. Because in the unspoiled, pre-sin-created order, men and women were partners. They were helpers to each other. And so... We look at that and we say, what does that mean for us today? What does that mean for us in the new covenant? That means that Jesus, in the life, death, and resurrection of the Messiah, comes in and says, I'm going to get us back to Eden. I'm going to get us back to pre-sin. I'm going to get us back to the place where everything was perfect. And that even means the relationship between men and women. That we're going to re-establish that as a relationship. That partnership. So how do we do that? How do we do that when we have a a passage like 1 Timothy 2.12 that says that, you know, we don't permit women to have authority and and do all that stuff? Are we saying that 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 one passage and the passage in 1 1 Corinthians 14 are the final word about women leading? I'd say no. No. And I wouldn't just say that because I am a woman, a woman in leadership. Because a lot of people were like, well, of course you think that. You're a woman in leadership. No. While there has been a lot of thoughtful scholarship about this original context and the situation that it was addressing, we have to look more broadly at Paul's writings. Because Paul didn't write just a letter to Timothy. He wrote a lot of the New Testament. And there is this consistent theme about unity in the body. There's this consistent theme that we are meant to do this together. There's this consistent theme about being on mission with God that is not stopped by somebody's gender. That that they were meant to do life and ministry together. In fact, in several places in the New Testament, Paul talks about 
his co-laborers in ministry. And he uses the word co-laborer for both men and for women. On the next slide, I'm just, it shows some of the women that Paul called his co-workers in the gospel. Romans 16.1 talks about Phoebe, who he commends to them. She was the one who delivered the letter to the Roman church. Priscilla and her husband Aquila, Nympha, Euoda, uh, and Syntyche, Priscilla, sorry if I'm bitchering all these names because that's not my thing, um, Junia was called an apostle. We have all these places in which Paul says, I commend these women to you as partners in the gospel. That this idea of ezership, for lack of a better term, finds its way into the New Testament partnerships. That these women helped Paul do the thing he was called to do. So, was Paul confused? Was he confused? Was he confused when he was talking to Timothy and then confused when he was talking to everybody else? No, I don't think he was. I think Paul was addressing a very specific situation that Timothy was dealing with and helping him out. I think Paul had a really high view of women. I think he saw not only the ability to partner with them because that was his experience, but he saw it modeled in the life of Jesus. Because again, we don't actually follow Paul's teachings because Paul was a great thinker. We follow Paul because he followed Jesus. And so when we talk about what does it mean for Paul to follow Jesus, we see all these places where Jesus affirmed women. We see these places where Jesus elevated women. We see these places where Jesus allowed women to follow him, to be a part of what he was doing. We see these places where Jesus uh, brought women along, where he healed them, where he saw them, where he called them out and he restored them. And it was women who were the first to declare the resurrection. I think sometimes we get a little like passive with that, but that's a big deal. That it wasn't just they were women who went and told everybody. He went to tell the disciples, the ones that they were closest to, Jesus. It was women who were tasked with telling them that he had risen. We don't follow Paul's leading about how women are supposed to function in the church, although Paul's practice shows that women are meant to lead in the church. But we follow Jesus. We follow Jesus. Paul writes to the Galatian church in Galatians 3, 26 through 28. He says, For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You are all one in Christ Jesus. That is why women can lead. Because we are invited into this place where we are a body, where no ethnic background, no language, no gender, no class can hinder anyone from being invited in and saying, come, be a part, make your contribution to expanding the kingdom of God. I've been reading a lot this year about Amy Simple McPherson in light of our centennial. 
And one of the things that, uh, a big myth in Foursquare is that the reason we license and ordain women is because Amy was a woman and we were founded by a woman. Here's the thing though. Amy, for as complicated and complex as she was, had two very strong beliefs. One, she believed that the Holy Spirit was for everybody. She didn't make that up, it's in scripture, we're gonna talk about it in a second. But she believed that all who were spirit baptized and all who had accepted Jesus were to be a people on mission with God. Two, she had a really firm conviction about the imminent return of Jesus. For her, Jesus was the soon coming king and there was an urgency to get the gospel to the whole world. And if you were only limited to one gender, it was gonna take twice as long to get there. And so her understanding that Jesus was going to return told her that we gotta get Everybody on mission. Young, old, male, female, ethnic, background, color, creed, whatever you're about, if you're filled with, if you've accepted Jesus and filled with the Spirit, you are on mission. She believed in the empowerment for all people because the Holy Spirit was for all people. And we see this in the book of Acts, which is where we're going to kind of conclude this morning. Because before the gospel got to Ephesus, before it ended up in Rome, before it ended up in Galatia or Colossae, there was a moment in Jerusalem. That as Jesus promised the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit would give them power to be witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We see this moment in Acts chapter 2 where the Holy Spirit falls on men and women who had been waiting in Jerusalem. And they began to speak in other tongues, in other languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. And, and people from the entire known world heard the gospel. And then they took it back to the places they came from. But in that moment, Peter the apostle gets up and he begins to preach and say, this is what was promised in the prophecy from Joel. In Acts two seventeen and 18, it says, in the last days, God says... I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. In those days, I will pour out my spirit even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. Your sons and your daughters, men and women alike, it couldn't be more clear. When people ask me, does the Bible permit women to lead? Does it permit women to preach? I'm just gonna start asking them, can women receive the Holy Spirit? And if the answer is yes, then yes. Because I have this really firm conviction that the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations is not optional. And if that is not optional, that means that we all have a responsibility. So if women are called to preach in order to make disciples, let them preach. If they're called to shepherd a congregation in order to make disciples, let them. If they're called to be wives and moms, let them. If they're called to be teachers or bankers or wherever God calls them, if they're filled with the Spirit, they're on mission. How dare we tell women to disobey God? 
It's one of the things that in my own story I've had to wrestle with because people have told me for a long time, well, women can't preach. Well, maybe, but that's what God's called me to do. And I answer to God (laughs) because I believe that the Great Commission is not optional. And so if I'm looking at this idea that we are to be people of the Great Commission, that means all of us, men and women, young and old, whatever your ethnic background, your language, God has called you and gifted you and, and positioned you to be a person on mission. So what do we do with hard passages like 1 Timothy 2? I mean, obviously, do the work, look at the context, read, get more study. Look, the stuff that I just talked to you about, I have done the research, but also there are a lot of people who would disagree with me. And that's okay. Because I don't answer to them. I answer to Jesus. But also, when we look at hard texts like this, we look at Jesus. We keep our eyes on the Messiah because he tells us how this is supposed to go. Because when I look at the Gospels, Jesus did not silence women. When I look at the Gospels, Jesus didn't elevate women over men or men over women. He said, all get to come in. When I look at the Gospels, Jesus said, love one another. If I'm looking at the Gospels, Jesus is telling us to serve one another and be mutually submitted to one another. If I'm looking at the gospel, Jesus prayed that we would be one, as he and the Father are one. When we come to these hard passages, we don't ignore them. But we let Jesus inform what it means to follow him. Because we look at what it means to be his body, we look at what it means to be witnesses of the good news, we look at how we are to serve one another, and we look at how to be one. Lord Jesus, would you make us one? Let that be our story in how we do this. Pastor Tim, would you come and join me as we close this morning? Aren't you thankful? that Jen came and brought the word today. One of the things I'm most encouraged about, and man, I was just taking notes as fast as my little thumbs could travel. Um, But not only did you help us understand this particular passage, but you really walked us through a way of reading scripture so that we could go deeper in our understanding. And, you know, I love what you said at the beginning. You know, when you come to a hard passage, do you just ignore it? You know, do you just take it at face value? Go, well, I guess everything I thought before didn't make sense or, you know. And, but, but to do the hard work, and you really kind of took us through a little bit of a master class um, on how to do that, of understanding context. And then you brought it back to Jesus. Always. I want to I ask you, because you kind of did just a flyover of kind of who Jesus was toward women. When you think, Jen, of the Gospels, is there a particular place, a story, 
a conversation that you hold dear in your heart about how Jesus interacted with a woman or with women. And uh, I, I would just love to, to hear your thoughts. This is spontaneous. She's being put on the spot here. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think my, one of my favorite women passages with Jesus comes out of John 11. Um, when Jesus has gone to Mary and Martha's house and Lazarus has died. And the care that he shows for those women not only knowing that Lazarus dying was a big deal for them because he was their brother, but also he was their sole source of income because of what it meant to be a woman. And he was there. He was locked in on their need. Mm-hmm. And was just like, hey, I'm here for you. And, and I think that it's an important reminder that Jesus doesn't forget us. Because it could have just been like, oh, that's a sad thing. Like, Whatever. But Jesus knew that the miracle that was going to come with Lazarus's resurrection was not just about Lazarus' resurrection, but it was about those women's resurrection too. Because they were no longer dead. They were no longer destitute. But that Lazarus coming back to life meant that they had life as well. <laughs> wow. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So good. So, Jen... Um, We're a church that believes in women in ministry leadership, as you know. But beyond what we kind of already do um, and your kind of knowledge of us, what would be your dream for us? Like if you could fast forward 10 years and, uh, you know, maybe I'm like retired and playing with my grandkids or whatever (laughs) and, and just here on the front row worshiping. But what, you know, what would be your dream for our church moving forward. Yeah. I think my dream for your church, as well as the dream for my church and everybody's churches, is that we would see women fully empowered. Um, and, and fully empowered, not just like we're going to give you a position, but that there is such a deep discipleship that tells them that they are worth it. Amen. That there is a sense of, I don't even have to ask the question if I'm allowed to do this, because I know, because I know so much of who Jesus has called me to be. Yeah that I know that I am empowered and equipped to do the work of the ministry. Praise the Lord. Why don't we close this way? I would like for our women to stand. I would like for our women to stand. And Jen, um, I want you to pray, um, but I'm going to then conclude in prayer. And I want to hold your hand as we do this in partnership together. Uh, let's pray a blessing. I believe that there's women even here today who have in the past come to passages like this and maybe felt restriction, maybe felt uh, the struggle of maybe I shouldn't step out the way that I feel called by the Spirit to, you know, to step out. Um, and I want to pray for those things to be broken. And then beyond that, that there would be this full sense of God's empowerment and calling on your life. We cannot complete the Great Commission without all of us working together in unity. So you lead it, you lead out, and then I'll wrap it. Amen. 
Let's go. Thank you, Jesus. God, we thank you for these women, these precious ones that you have created in your image, in your likeness. God, for anyone that is in this room or online, God, that they have felt limited by their gender, God, would you free them in the name of Jesus right now, that they would know that they are called, that they are empowered, that they are filled with the Spirit, and that they are to walk in partnership with our brothers, Lord, but also with you. Holy Spirit, I pray for women that may be called into vocational ministry, that felt like they couldn't do it. God, would you begin to release those chains in Jesus' name? Lord, for those that are like, I'm not called to vocational leadership, but uh, God, I pray that wherever you have called them, to their workplaces, to their homes, to their church community, God, wherever they have been called, Lord, would they be filled with your spirit afresh today? Holy Spirit, would your daughters begin to rise up and prophesy? Lord, would you begin to put your words in the mouths of women, Lord, that they would speak the gospel wherever they are at? Lord, would we see a revival in your church because of women who are empowered to carry the gospel to all the places that you have called them? Jesus, we thank you that we are not limited but God, that we are filled with the Spirit and sent on mission. So Lord, would you send us, men and women alike, into the places and spaces that need your love. In the name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Lord, in representing my brothers in the room, Thank you, Jesus. but speaking also as the pastor here, Lord, I repent. Lord, for where we've gotten it wrong, where even with our best intent, where we have held women back from being obedient to the calling, Lord, on their lives. Lord, forgive us. And by your grace and your mercy, Lord, continue to choose to work, Father, in, this, in these broken people. Yes, Lord. Lord, thank you for partnership. Lord, thank you for this easership, this kind of this new concept. Lord, that we're understanding, Lord, about being allies and being partners. Yes. How do we do your great commission together? For we are all commissioned because we are all recipients of your Holy Spirit's leading, calling, and empowerment. So Jesus, help us do this together and walk in unity into our future. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. And Jen, we are so grateful uh, that our Foursquare movement is blessed um, because of your leadership and of others like you who are helping to lead the way in our district and really globally. So thank you, thank you, thank you.